Welcome to the Life and Language podcast. I'm Michaela Malberg, and today I've got the pleasure to welcome Professor Deborah Cameron on the show. Deborah is Rupert Murdoch Professor of Language and Communication at the University of Oxford. Debbie, welcome. It's great to have you. Nice to talk to you. On, on your blog, Language, a Feminist Guide, you describe yourself as a feminist who is also a linguist. I found that quite interesting. Can you maybe tell us how the two, the feminist and the linguist, work together? Well, on my blog, they definitely work together because I conceived of it really as a blog for feminists, not for linguists. So that's why I put the feminist first. Uh, in my life as a, as a professor at Oxford, actually, I'm probably more of a linguist who's also a feminist because I don't get endless chances to teach the feminist stuff. I'm often teaching stuff that has nothing to do with it. But how they work together, how they've worked together kind of in my life is that um, very early on, I started publishing things that had relevance to feminists. And I became interested in doing um, public engagement, really, talking to audiences of people who aren't linguists, who aren't even academics, you know, trying to put knowledge about language in the service of other things. And, you know, because I was also very active in sort of feminist political projects, that was where I took it. Though it's not the only place I took it. Um, I, I also communicate with non-linguists about other things to do with language. Mm. And um, did you always know that you wanted to end up in a position like this so being a linguist at the university and engaging in that way with language or were there other things on the way that you tried out and thought oh that's exciting as well mm -hmm. um I didn't always know I mean for one thing I grew up in a family where nobody had been to university and so there wasn't any sort of talk or thinking about um intellectual type professions you know I mean, I, so I wasn't really expecting that kind of thing at all and when I was I don't know 17 or 18 and I left school I didn't go straight to university partly because of family circumstances so I had a number of other jobs terrible jobs like um, working in a hospital laundry for a bit and then working in a high street bank which I truly truly hated and at the point where um, the manager of the bank where I worked said that he wasn't, in, you know, my probation had expired and it was time for me to go. <laughs> um, he said to me, really, you should go to university. And so I did. I, I, that, that was the point at which I kind of thought, OK, yeah, I, I should get an education. And um, I suppose after that, I went to university to do English. It was English language and literature. And. Part of it was linguistics, which I'd never done before. And I really liked it. So I just kind of kept on doing it. And before I knew it, I was like a graduate student. And then I was starting to, you know, teach other people as a graduate student. And then I kind of got a job um, doing the same thing and, and getting paid a sal salary. So my career kind of just um, sort of happened, <laughs> really. Um, and now I've been doing it for nearly 40 years. So, um, yeah, in a way, I've had a very boring professional life because I haven't ever stepped out and done anything completely different, unless you count way back in time working in a laundry. 
<laughs> and I thought that was maybe also some good experience to then get to. Uh, well, I certainly know how to iron. <laughs> <laughs> that can be useful. Um, feminism and language are relevant to all areas of society. And you're talking about ironing here. That, that might be a mm -hmm. point to get, jump on. But, but also topics that really everyone seems to have an opinion on so you know when you meet someone people always have an opinion on how others speak how they use language words that they like and dislike if we stick this, with this for now you wrote a very successful book in the 90s called verbal hygiene and this was published in its second edition in 2012 in this book you talk about how language use is evaluated and really critically commented on in everyday life uh, what I found interesting is, as you explain the concept of verbal hygiene, you describe how your role as professor made you a bit of an, what do you call it, a part-time agony aunt to the linguistically convulsed. Can you share some of the problems that people brought to you to then solve for them? Uh-huh, yes, I can share them, partly because... Um, I, I became briefly a stand-up comedian, an amateur stand-up comedian, and my routine was entirely based on the things that people, people brought me. I mean, people always ask linguists questions about, I remember standing in the office of the English department at Strathclyde University, and the secretary was taking a call from someone who'd just phoned up to ask how to spell rhododendron. I mean, that was what they thought English departments were for. <laughs> you know, they were kind of a personal dictionary for your spelling problems and so on. But it really escalated when, once I went to Oxford because people think that Oxford is kind of, you know, the original source of authority on the English language because of the dictionaries and the kind of the grammar books, if you're a second language learner and, and so on. So I started getting mad phone calls from people who would say things like, um, I'm, you know, I'm in a meeting and we're having this argument about the subjunctive and we need you to settle it for us. Or, you know, people having a bet or somebody from an, an import export company once emailed me to say that he, he told his staff that they couldn't send out memos in English. I think he was in the Netherlands. They couldn't send out memos in English until I checked their preposition usage. So I emailed back and said, and how much are you going to pay me for this? <laughs> for this really rather boring job and I never heard from him again but that kind of thing but some of them were much more interesting so I got a letter from someone I didn't they were anonymous I only know that they lived in Swindon um, imploring me okay to, to start a committee of experts to invent 500 new words dealing with small nuances of thought and feeling <laughs> And he, whoever wrote this this letter, I'm gonna I'm gonna use the pronoun he because I have a hunch about it. But um, he was worried that um, that we were falling behind other European nations in this um, in this respect. And people always talk about German, right? I'm assuming that you're a speaker of German because yeah, of your yeah. your name. And so they're always going, you know, we need we need you know an English word for Weltschmerz or. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Schadenfreude. <laughs> um, and he said, you know, if you could do this service, you'd be giving our, our national character a steer in these dif difficult global times. So that's that's one kind of, you know, madness. So this is the figure really that 
I suppose I referred to in my book, Verbal Hygiene, as Mr. Crank, the mm. archetype of someone who's got a bee in their bonnet about something. So it's not just, you know, grammar and spelling correctness or something. It's kind of this grandiose scheme for improving the world by doing something with language. Once I opened the door of my office and there was a man standing there who was dressed as a potato. A potato? He was wearing a potato suit. And it turned out that, and he wanted me to come with him to the offices of the uh, of Oxford University Press, which makes the dictionary, um, to, because he was having a protest against the inclusion of the term couch potato, um, which he felt he felt was unfair to potatoes, which are actually really healthy. You know, it's, they um, they've got more vitamin C than an orange and you know more fiber than a bowl of porridge and so oh it turned God. out he was from the potato marketing board and it was a it was a publicity stunt um <laughs> I said to him you know look can we just have a word about you know what a dictionary is but he was he was probably in a way winding me up because it was a, a publicity stunt. But there are people like him who who genuinely believe that there's some problem with a word or a phrase or or what have you. So so yes, I get I get a lot of that. One of the first things that happened when I um, when I arrived in Oxford was that the press were calling me up asking for a quote on. So this was the week. I think maybe older listeners to your podcast may remember that at some point the the post office, as it then was, decided to rename its parcel delivering bit consignia. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, this didn't I think they renamed it for a while and then they quietly got rid of it because it didn't catch on at all. So what is it now? It's like parcel force or it's the um consignia they wanted it to have this latinate name and so the press wanted to know what did the professor of language and communication at oxford think and i actually used the phrase management bollocks and i got into some trouble <laughs> because it wasn't very decorous in fact i think the somebody wrote a letter to the guardian saying well what do you expect and, you know of course you're going to get words like that because she is after all the rupert murdoch professor <laughs> So, yeah, yeah, I mean, at, at Oxford, you're sort of you sort of become a public figure, whether you want to or not, because of this construction of Oxford as this centre for, for language authority. But certainly it was very interesting for me as the author of Verbal Hygiene, because I couldn't just say, um, oh, no, this is nonsense. I'm just not going to respond to any of this stuff. I felt that because I had this this theory about it, that I was um, being gifted with all this new data that I really had to engage Hmm. but I suppose the main thing I've done with it since is develop a stand-up act (laughs) so it's been good for that as well yeah talking about the new data that you're given to comment on and think about I mean in, in politics language always matters and there's always loads to talk about and there now seem to be politicians who want to bring back imperial measurements so we can go to the shops and buy things in pounds and ounces. This is obviously not exactly the same thing like the types of examples that you were just explaining, but but it's also a matter of discourse, isn't it? So, so, so what's your view on that? Well, my view on that, I, on Twitter, I, I tweeted, are we going to be able to also buy things in L's and pecs? You know, these ancient... <laughs> When I was at school, on the back of your kind of log tables in maths, 
you'd get this kind of, you know, list of the units. I suppose now people learn SI units names, but we had these kind of baffling things and they were things like a peck and a bushel and, um, you know, so many chains make a furlong and eight furlongs make a mile. I mean, we had to know all this. And and although I'm quite old, I'm obviously still alive. So we're not talking 100 years ago. So, but, you know, it is ridiculous. And I don't think, um, I mean, with that, I really did wonder who he thought he was addressing because all those shopkeepers who went kind of completely crazy when they had to start using kilos, presumably they are all retired now and people who have a market stall went to school when the metric system was taught. So, um, I mean, the non-metric system made you pretty good at, you know, doing arithmetic in different bases. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, now they're no use, are they? They could just do it in 10. But, yeah. uh, but yeah. Oh, that's more problem for a very, very silly suggestion, I think. Mm. <laughs> and moving on from the silly suggestion, um, if we look at the link between language and feminism a bit more, so in mm. many areas of life, when we look at Western cultures, at least, there are now theoretically equal opportunities. In reality, there are still imbalances in the representation of women in many areas. So in, in politics, in the boardroom, in management, in university leadership. A reason that is often offered is that women seem to fare less well in roles where language or speaking skills or particular speaking style is important to get things done or to show that you're in charge. So it is suggested that women have maybe deficits in their linguistic abilities. I mean, is that so? Is, even is there a specific way of how women in general speak? I mean, what bothers me is that in general and how women, all women speak. What do yes, you uh, I mean, we if if sociolinguistics teaches us anything, it's that, that it, is, um, it is inaccurate to generalize about such a huge group as women. <laughs> you know, women are as different from each other, at least as different from each other as they are from, you know, the average man and, and the same with men. So, you know, each group is impacted by other differences, differences of, you know, social class and education, differences of ethnicity and culture, differences of age and generation. You know, it's it's absolutely ridiculous to have the view women talk like this and men talk like that. And in fact, that's the, 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 the kind of theme of one of my other books, The Myth of Mars and Venus, because this kind of thing was very, very popular in the 90s. You know, men are from Mars, women are from Venus, or Deborah Tannen's You Just Don't Understand sort of men and women are these completely different um, communicative cultures. I really don't think that reputable evidence supports that at all. So it's, it's very unhelpful. And also it's always used as an explanation of why women are being, you know, disadvantaged, marginalized, subordinated. Mm. So it, it has an ideological function too. So, you know, one of the things that I, find very important to do as a feminist who, who is also a linguist or vice versa is debunk that kind of thing mm. so it is extremely popular because it's a, a very graspable explanation and it makes it nobody's fault mm. 
and it also makes some people quite a lot of money doesn't it because um, oh yes <laughs> once, once once you do this and say um you the reason why you're not being promoted is really you don't have the skills to speak properly and if only you'd interviewed better or you did all these things because what you can then do is you really open a market for all these training courses or advice literature on how to speak with more confidence or there are also courses on body language that seems to be that seem to be going really rather well what do you think of this kind of self-help or all this advice literature that also seems to be particularly targeted at women of course you can also advise men on how to do interviews but it seems there's quite a lot especially for women and always to make them more like men in in certain situations Yes, I think it's I think it's really, really awful. Um, I find it so depressing as a feature of corporate culture. I mean, most kinds of training on language and communication are very bad in that they're not at all evidence based. Mm -hmm. um, but the, but this market in training for women, I find it very, very odd in a way. I mean, if you think about um, other kinds of equality and diversity training, on say, you know, race or sexuality or whatever, they would always focus, they always now focus on, um, you know, getting, if you like, the advantaged group, the dominant group to think about its advantages and to think about the ways in which other people might experience things differently. There's none of that with men and women, is there? It's all, well, we'll take the women, send them on a course, how to be more assertive, how to be more confident or whatever, and that will solve the problem. It's cheap. It doesn't annoy the men because they don't have to go on the course. Um, and there is no evidence whatsoever, as far as I have ever been able to find out, that it, it has an effect. I mean, you can get, I, and I do get women, when I criticize this, I always get emails from women who say, oh, I went on one of these courses and really, really helpful. I found it very blah, blah, blah. But, you know, hard evidence that it affects outcomes is completely lacking. Yeah. And it, it's, um, you know, why, why would we invest? And I say we, because this stuff is very popular in universities, often can be branded, you know, by the, the Athena Swan scheme, which is supposed to monitor equality in higher education, gender equality. And, you know, I, I just find it amazing that, that in universities, this intervention, which has no evidence supporting its effectiveness at all, um, you know, gets resources, gets publicized. I think it's insulting, to be honest. Mm. And w what do you think? How could this be approached? Because it's kind of because also what it does is it makes the problem a very individual problem. It's kind of like you, woman, if you better yourself, if you improve yourself, then it's all fine. But we, the system, really we do as much as we can but we can't help that much how how can this be changed so how can you actually get to the systematic approach of it i mean what kind of measures tools do we need well, well i don't i don't think training would necessarily be at the center of it at all i mean i think this this whole idea that there is some deficiency collectively affecting women um, in this day and age is a bit odd. I mean, I, I think we know what factors are keeping women, you know, and more particularly certain groups of women from being promoted or from or whatever in, in universities. I mean, we need to talk about childcare. 
We need to talk about ridiculous workload requirements. Um, we need to talk about, you know, the whole culture that has grown up of, of how we um, how we value different kinds of work and even different kinds of publishing, you know, so that the rewards are all for a certain sort of research. Um, I also think that, you know, at least some women are, are not doing that badly anymore. I mean, we have statistics showing that they're underrepresented at the at the top in the in, you know, as professors or whatever, and that this applies more to certain groups of women than than to others. I mean, I think we could analyze all that stuff and think, well, what do you do about it? Which I, has to involve changing the system, not fixing the women. Mm, yeah, exactly. And um, related to that, the point that you mentioned in your writing is that women can often find themselves in a bit of a double bind situation. So for instance, when women then are successful and are in powerful positions, they might end up not being seen as particularly likable or then um, here you get the terminology again. I mean, often you then get verbs like, oh, bossy or, you know, control freakish or, or whatever. Abrasive. <laughs> and, uh, Abrasive, <laughs> aggressive, strident. Holist, yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, that that's the kind of reward for being a woman in a position of authority, the non-reward. And and yeah, I think I think for quite a lot of women, the prospect of that is a deterrent to actually, you know, not not everybody wants to be in that position. And probably true of men as well. You know, that's another thing. It, it, the whole thing is based on a very everybody should want to climb the greasy pole kind of way. Um, and there are there are differences in individuals, you know, circumstances and their temperament, as well as, you know, it's not all down to the kind of big visible differences like are you a man or a woman? Mm. And it's also quite connected to various kinds of biases that we have in terms of, you know, similarity bias that uh, mm -hmm. the people who are in a specific position just think that everyone needs to be like them to be of any mm -hmm. value. And, uh, and that is tricky as well. I think that also, again, connects to areas of popular interest. So not quite like advice literature, but there are now increasingly books on gender inequality that just call out the inequalities. And I mean, these books are nothing new. They've been around for a while, but I just came a, a few very recent ones that I found particularly interesting. There's this one by Marianne Seacard, The Authority Gap. And when reading this book, I thought there are quite a few references to your work and also some of the arguments there really remind me of things that you have said. And I think you kind of also talked to the author. So to, to what extent were you kind of explicitly involved in advising or, you know, what kind of example of public engagement is this? Yeah, well, I don't want to take, um, take credit for Marianne's very extensive research, but she was um, a fellow at All Souls College in Oxford for part of the time when she was writing it. And during that time, we, we did meet and talk about it. So yeah, I did have some hand in, in, um, in it, but I think she would have taken that direction anyway, you know, from, from the research and so on. So I'm glad, it, I'm glad it's done so well because as a journalist, she can obviously tap into, um, you know, sources of, uh, of publicity or whatever, but there's an academic often can't. She can write in a very, you know, direct, accessible way. 
I find it interesting to to sort of talk to such people and indeed to write for those kinds of, of outlets sometimes or, you know, go on the radio or whatever. I think that if you can do that, um, it's a very good idea to do it. What would you say to people who would like to do these things more? Because, uh, you know, I think it, it's brilliant that you can see the connection between research and popular interest so that there's actually, yeah, a, a real impact that the research have. What would you advise people on how to get into such a way of working? Well, it's kind of difficult. I mean, how I did it, I suppose, was that, you know, I mean, my 15 minutes of fame was in about, you know, 2007 to eight after I wrote The Myth of Mars and Venus, which was a trade book. Um, that is to say, not an academic, it was published by an academic press, but in their trade section where they try to sell it to ordinary bookshops and, and so forth. And they put you on a kind of publicity track. And as it happened, that book was serialized in The Guardian. So it got a lot of interest. And I mean, I had some form of, you know, I'd been on the radio a few times and and I suppose I kept being asked back because I could do it. Not everybody can do it. You have to be able to keep it concise, think on your feet, that kind of thing. Well, at least if you're doing live um, radio. But yeah, the, the myth of Mars and Venus was really kind of when I became able to get sort of slots in the media. But I often think um, you shouldn't think you've had an impact just because you've been on, you know, a radio program that has an audience of a couple of million or something. You can work much more behind the scenes and still be having an impact, you know, work with professionals, teachers or psychologists or whatever it, it might be. Um, you know, the whole public thing, maybe it has more prestige than it actually has effect. I think you have a lot of impact, actually, if you write books for students, you know, textbooks, teaching books. People, you get no sort of credit for it as original research or whatever, and, um, and people are like, oh, you know, textbooks, how boring or whatever. But actually, you might write something that will be read by, you know, hundreds or thousands of young people every year for years on end and you know maybe they'll go out and they'll be school teachers and they'll take that into a school classroom or they'll be working in an office and then somebody suggests an idiotic form of training and they'll say ah oh, actually <laughs> there's evidence that um so I think there are many ways to have an influence beyond your academic bubble as it were and and being a kind of you know media type isn't necessarily the only one and of course anybody when one of the great things about the digital age is that anybody can occupy a platform they can't necessarily get other people to you know read what they write or or listen to what they podcast but you can try doing it it's it's not at all it doesn't need much in the way of resource so I have a blog I started it in 2015 I thought it would be quite niche. It's called Language of Feminist Guides. So sort of does what it says on the tin kind of thing. I imagined it, that people who were interested in, you know, language and feminism would kind of find it. And I would have a readership of maybe a couple of thousand or something. But actually within three months, I had um, published a post that went that went genuinely viral. So, you know, there, there were 36,000 people hitting it every day. 
Uh, I mean, that hasn't kept up, obviously, but but I can expect what I post to, you know, get thousands rather than hundreds of hits. And the blog as a whole, since I started it, it's had, you know, one and a quarter million hits, maybe, you know, getting on, getting just under a million visitors, union people who visited it. And I think the thing I find most amazing is that there's only two countries in the world where nobody's ever visited it. I mean, literally, so North Korea and Chad. Everywhere else in the entire world, at least one person on one occasion has visited Language of Feminist Guide. So you actually can have have quite a reach without having any um, infrastructure, kind of commercial or, or... institutional infrastructure i don't even say on my blog really who i am i mean people know now but um but so you know there's a kind of ready-made platform for everybody and it's a very competitive field there are lots of voices out there shouting but if you've got something to say it is possible to cut through Mm. and um you mentioned technology when we got to the topic of the blog and how that made a difference is, is 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 there more in terms of obviously technology in itself doesn't solve a problem <laughs> but uh, have you observed anything in terms of the impact that technology has on language in particular and the study of language that is also quite exciting for feminism in a way um I'm not sure what you mean. <laughs> in terms of the new outlets or the new ways of, you know, technology is now, for instance, sometimes mentioned now that we had this whole COVID um, time where we couldn't go anywhere. And you mentioned childcare before. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people have said, you, you know what, I was actually able to go to more conferences than I was able to go to before because I didn't have to worry about bringing my... 12 year old along somewhere I could just you know zoom in and I still made all the connections with people and so I'm wondering Mm. you know have you observed anything in that regard where things have maybe changed where something needs to be said about all these stereotypes about women talk differently women can't do this or that where technology really made um, a difference I think it will be very interesting to see um, if anybody has has done research on how mediated interaction, um, whether it changed the kind of patterns that we're familiar with in face-to-face interaction. I mean, I'm sure somebody must have tried, you know, studied that during the pandemic. I didn't, so I can't say. I mean, my own um, kind of anecdotal and intuitive observation was that meeting on, you know, Zoom or Teams or whatever, kind of did inhibit the tendency of certain usually men, usually in high status positions to just chip in all the time. It made it more difficult and to that extent equalized it. But the thing is without better data and actual Mm. analysis, nobody can be sure what the patterns are. And I think it's too soon to say. Mm. I I think one depressing thing about, um, you know, new media technology and so on is that research has usually found that in terms of gender, they behave exactly like the old ones. So, you know, there are a lot of women on Twitter, but fewer people follow them, fewer people retweet them. Um, You know, political commentators, for instance, on on Twitter, the men follow other men, women follow women and men. So Mm. (laughs) the patterns that we 
already knew about in you know pre-digital times seem to have transferred pretty wholesale onto newer technologies and it may be the same with you know your your zoom meeting or whatever but i think we don't know yet mm. yeah another thing where technology obviously at the moment is already doing quite a, job, a good job is um, giving us data to look at. So um, there's another book to mention is um, the one Invisible Women by Criado Perez. And she's done quite a lot of work really assembling data to show inequalities so, so that you actually got the numbers and you can relate it to the situation. And, um, and I think this is another example of how awareness raising is really important to tackle problems that are systemic and um, what I wanted to see is in terms of awareness raising that also brings us back to this idea of verbal hygiene because a lot of the time when people uh, use language we do this really unconsciously so so we are not aware of how often we say a certain word or how frequent the word that we use is, is compared to how frequently it is generally used by lots of other people so when we approach language with value judgments, even if it is about what we don't like or think about cleaning up language, it is already showing that we are paying attention, that we are aware of what's happening. So isn't that a good point for linguists and also for feminists to come in and make something of that? So yeah, I think, um, I, I think it is good to raise awareness. Um, of, and I think we do have we do have tools for finding out things that we couldn't find out in the past. I mean, and I'm thinking of exactly um, very large corpora. Um, on the other hand, they're only as good as the sampling is. Mm. <laughs> and for many purposes of interest to feminists, I think the sampling um, for major and very accessible cor corpora, you know, maybe isn't that great <laughs> or, or else the metadata isn't. So there's a lot you can't, you can't tell um but yeah in principle the tools are there if you could improve corpora if you could uh, you know give people some instructions and say could you collect me a corpus that has this and that metadata what would be on your wish list wish wish list um i think i think really a much wider range of spoken genres um and you know, and, and, you know, full, fuller metadata on who's talking to whom about what. But um, so I, I just always feel that, you know, the stuff I look at, I'll, I'll have a hunch about something and maybe I'll go and have a look at, you know, Koha, the, the American historical corpus. And, and I just think, you know, the range of stuff that they sampled, it's very, um, I mean, that's, that's, writing of course um but e even then it's kind of you know novels very mainstream magazines i do think in most co corpora that are used for purposes like dictionary compilation for instance there's i mean although they crawl the web and so that and you know cut out the porn and shopping and uh, so they, they've in a sense got everything there are sort of specialist things that are completely neglected. So people make claims about how words were used um, in the fairly recent past, say in the 60s, you know, what's happened to the word gender or whatever. But actually, they haven't got any second wave feminist sources, really, because those things were sort of 
you know photocopied pamphlets and um you know they they're just not easy to get get hold of they wouldn't show up in a in a sample that was made by taking every nth you know published thing in an in an archive and you know sometimes you really do want to be able to look at more more specialized stuff which is being lost because you're you're looking at something that isn't mainstream so yeah sorry i'm diverging there because that isn't what i'd say to someone making a, a corpus yeah. <laughs> yeah, i'm talking more about history but yeah so yeah more on more on the spoken side a larger um you know there are specialist corpora you can look at but they were usually made for some other purpose so um you know like looking at them the use of academic English by second language speakers or writers rather, you know, so there, there's good material for some purposes and kind of material that's more difficult to adapt for others. Yeah. And that, that, that's always a tricky thing. The um, reusing the same data set for different purposes, because mm -hmm. once you've got it, you obviously want to get as much as possible out of it and then it might not fit for for all the things you want to do with it but uh, you, you said uh, you were digressing with the history i actually like to come back to that point about history because um again in your introduction to feminism you discuss the role of women in culture and um, as you as you say it's basically male culture it's a, it's a certain point of view it's a lens that we have on how culture is viewed and you there touch upon uh, virginia wolf and the why no female shakespeare question and i think that also connects to, to some issues in corpora and data sampling, because when, when you look at what's happening in digital humanities, where people look at literary and cultural history, and then discussions about um, why are there are so many more male authors and um, what do we do with the gender balance and it, the canon is already biased. So what can we say about women in the 19th century? So, you know, it's all about telling stories and selecting the information that you want to have in the story. Um, or sometimes taking what you can get, right? I mean, <coughs> although, although um, you know, male writers were more likely to publish um, in, the, in the past, there's also an issue about what has actually lasted if you go back far enough. I mean, yeah, no, not so much from say the 19th century, but if we're talking about the 15th century, you know, I mean, if things haven't been preserved, there's an, that's a, and you know that's also I think a, a kind of very important, although very boring point <laughs> about doing scholarship on things like men and women or whatever. That it's good to be aware of what you don't know and and can't know, you know. And and I think people often forget that that there is a certain amount of of uncertainty which is caused by what you what knowledge or what source materials you can possibly have access to yeah and in that regard i think it's it's again language that's really quite interesting because language is almost a way of yeah cultural memory because i mean how how do you learn about uh, certain behaviors about um, cultural history you know unless you take it as a subject that you really study you learn about it from the stories of other people, from real people, from fictional people, from the language that is used to tell these stories. So, you know, the way girls are often talked to in terms of beautiful dresses or boys are talked to about running fast, that, that isn't something that people just make up, that 
has mm. a historical dimension of having heard it time and time again. What tasks do you see here for linguists? What can be done with this information? I think more and more that it's it's very important for us to focus not only on the things that everyone thinks are linguistics, you know, well, lay people think it's words. Let's talk about words. But I think that we need very much to talk about stories. And one of the one of the issues that bothers me most is the media reporting of violence against women, killings of women, beatings of women, rapes, you know, child sex abuse, all those kinds of things. You find that there are these formulas that recur over and over and over again. So I'm not a you know strong linguistic determinist that in, if you read this, you will think that or whatever. But if you do see the same forms of words and the same narratives repeated over and over again, that does normalize them. And it is kind of remarkable if you go back in time a bit and you realize that there's a connection, for example, um, between the present day reporting of cases where a man kills a, um, a woman, a partner who's been unfaithful to him or who's rejected him. There's a connection between that and the, the kind of very old genre of the sweetheart murder ballad. You can see linguistic resemblances, but also that it's the same story. Or something like the pop song Delilah. Delilah is a sweetheart murder ballad. Mm. And, you know, we, we don't think it's at all remarkable to hear this played on oldies radio or whatever. It's still an iconic song. But if you think about it and then yesterday, some man did that to some woman and it's reported in the same sort of of terms. He snapped. He couldn't take any more. Um, and I think to look critically at those stories and, you know, the role words play in them, but it's not just about the words. It's about the overarching cultural schema that makes the story. Pointing that out is important. And my own experience is that people often haven't thought of it mm. or, or don't know it. They don't realize that, you know, sort of myths and legends, thing, things that were not exactly fictional because there were real cases in the past as well, but um, sort of folklore is, was so influential in the history of the genre of crime reporting that they, you actually can trace, you know, the, the progression. And then that is still sort of going on today because the reporters who are doing it have absolutely no sense that they're repeating a genre of folklore that was around in the 18th century. Yeah, and, and I think that that point, I mean, that is uh, something I'm very interested in, is this relationship between fiction and the real world, where, where you often hear, yeah, it's just fiction and it's just a story that you read and it's nothing to do with reality. I think it really has absolutely everything to do with reality because the language that we use in fiction, the narratives, as you say, that is also then the templates that we have to understand what is happening in real time. And we really need to be careful. I mean, I've looked at children's literature in that regard. Also, you know, what you give children to learn about the world, because especially children haven't got the wide range of experience yet, but they experience through the stories that they hear. And if you give them enough stories of a certain type that will color <laughs> how they understand 
and see the world. So, so I think it's also then really important to look at, you know, not just books, but also how women are represented in films and what happens in films in terms of how you show what their speaking is like, what their relationship to other people is like. Is, is there something that you want to say? Yeah, I, I agree. I just think that narrative um, is so powerful. The idea that one thing happens after another, one thing leads to another, this cause has this effect. It, it's such a powerful way of human thinking. You know, that's why we have so many narratives, right? And um, so the idea that they would have no influence on the way that we perceive actual real events or even or the way scientists think about things. It's a, I think that's, um, that's very implausible. And um, on this matter of film, I mean, that, that now sounds trivial, but kind of is also relevant again, because um, looking at the latest James Bond, you know, it's, it's probably likely or has been confirmed to be Daniel Craig's last one. And some people say now it's really time for a female Bond. So what we need is, um, yeah, we, we need a female Bond. And others then say that's completely the wrong point. It's not about turning male characters into female characters and creating a female version of a male fictional character. But what we need is different types of female characters, di different roles for women to play. What do you think? I mean... Well, okay, I think, I, I think at this point I'm kind of exceeding my remit as a linguist. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what, what I think about it is that... Um, maybe there's a case for both. I mean, certainly I think we need different kinds of stories. But if you think about, um, you know, the reactions when the last Doctor Who was female, um, I think the point is that these have become very beloved, very iconic characters. And so putting someone you don't expect to see in that role in that role um, has some sort of effect and kind of... Um, sparks a reaction a discussion whatever I mean some people thought it was great Jodie Whittaker as Doctor Who some people you know said they never watch Doctor Who again or or whatever and I guess it would be the same with with James Bond I mean I stopped watching Bond films a long time ago but <laughs> so I I don't know what they're like um, nowadays but um, I remember the classic ones though and, you know, it's interesting to think what you could do with that. I don't think one rules out the other, you know, putting putting a woman in an iconic uh, male character slot doesn't rule out telling other stories about women that were designed for a woman character. Mm. Yeah, so it's both. No, exactly. It's generally a matter of, yeah, making things more diverse, thinking more outside the box and not just confirming the general narratives that we had all mm. along. So something I'd like to come back to um, as we need to move to a final question is, you know, we talked before about um, systemic improvements and looking at norms and looking at what becomes accepted and also the positions and roles that different people and institutions have to change things. So going back to right to the beginning, to your position in um, a university, aren't universities good places to yeah try and make things better in terms of the feminist course what do you think could happen what would be your ideal vision for where universities universities should go from here 
And is there maybe also something that we can do in terms of how we teach linguistics and what we should teach and what we should offer people? Hmm. I think universities are increasingly you know, not much different from other places in, in this respect, because universities in Britain now are businesses. So you have got, um, you have got an increasing number of women right at the top. I mean, think how many very prominent women vice chancellors there are now. Oxford has a, a woman vice chancellor at the moment. Then there's, you know, Dame Janet Beer and Dame Nancy, so Manchester and Liverpool, and those women are enacting, you know, very hierarchical, very business focused sort of structures. And, you know, maybe they're getting more um, negative representations than a man who did the same thing would get. But that doesn't. And I would criticize that, you know, they they don't deserve to be judged in any different terms from men. But the fact remains that, they, that they're being put in a slot um, that completely sort of you know it's at the top of a hierarchy it's all about it's all about sort of balancing the books climbing up the rankings it's a very patriarchal kind of model it seems to me and they're you know they're getting the jobs because they're prepared to be ruthless they will lay off staff or you know open a campus in <laughs> in china or or whatever it might be they're not bringing a whole different set of values to the table. And, you know, and one part of my feminism is women shouldn't have to be better than men, you know, morally better or, or indeed better in performance. They shouldn't have to be judged by different standards. But this is not how we get to the feminist university. I mean, a feminist university would have a different kind of ethos entirely and then a different sort of scale of values. But I must say, I can't see it happening because, you know, the, the, um, the bottom line is the bottom line. <laughs> we, can't, we can't fund it. So I think, um, I think the kind of, you know, community of scholars and gentlemen type university actually had a much better chance of being um, a more hospitable place for diversity, but it wasn't a more hospitable place for diversity. As soon as universities became more diverse, they also became more driven by this, um, this extremely kind of um, regimented, managed capitalist model, mm. which is kind of ironic. So, so what would you say then in, in terms of linguistics teaching and the things that we offer there? Is, is there something that we can do to make our subject work in that respect? I believe that for many students, linguistics does work as a kind of um, eye-opener about culture and social relations. I don't think that's initially how it worked for me. I was just fascinated by it because I didn't know that this more scientific way of talking about language even existed. You know, you couldn't do it at school when I was at school. So it was totally new to me as a university student. And I was I was kind of, you know, amazed by things like basic phonology or <laughs> uh, not so much by syntax, because, of course, being people in my generation spent a lot of time parsing. Essentially, we didn't have the same terminology, but it was the same sort of thing. But but, you know, 
I think for many of my students, I've had I've had students, you know, write to me after the years after the event and say, actually, that course, you know, changed my whole way of thinking or changed my life even because it is a way of thinking about things that are very much part of your own lived experience. I mean, language is part of everybody's lived experience. And also the things around identity or power or the, the, the idea that there's not just one way of representing a certain state of affairs, that you always have choices. And there are structured ways of studying what making different choices can do. I mean, I, I think that is amazingly eye-opening for lots of students. So I think, um, you know, in a, in a way, I, I suppose I'm saying we're kind of already doing it. It's already there if they want to take it. But I think students, too, are under a lot of pressures that they didn't used to be under. And I worry that, that perhaps, you know, the extent to which they can they can sort of take up the actual ideas they're coming into contact with is maybe impaired by the fact that they're very worried about how they're going to do at the end. They're often having to, you know, pursue a lot of other things at the same time because they need to earn money. They worry about the debt. Um, those kinds of things have perhaps made being a student not the kind of great um intellectual developmental experience that perhaps it should be or um, and that maybe it used to be for at least some I mean um, of course there were always students who didn't really care much about the intellectual side of it <laughs> they, were, <laughs> they were more interested in you know sport or student journalism or acting or or partying yeah. I mean such people have always existed yeah they certainly existed when I was a student <laughs> much freer to be to be completely blow off your work in those days because you got a grant there weren't any fees and so long as you managed to get you know a 2-2 you could probably get a graduate job so I think um, people of my generation were a lot luckier than the people I'm teaching now in those respects to end with a bit of optimism though is <laughs> 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 Is there anything that you would yeah, give us as, as advice to the next generation of feminists and linguists in terms of try this and you won't regret it? <laughs> no, I think that I think that each new generation of people who are doing a certain thing have to make their own way. They have to work out for themselves what they want to do, what's needed, you know, what the what the right response is but I do think it's useful for anyone you know coming newly on a particular scene to be aware of you know the people and the ideas and activities and so on that came before it's sort of um, frustrating to me when I see people essentially reinventing the wheel <laughs> because you know generations of feminist scholars do something and then then it's just um, lost it's not remembered it's um I think that that is a real problem for feminist scholarship as well as feminist activism and so you have somebody coming back and you know being hailed because they're saying something that you know old old crones like me remember actually being said in 1975 but nobody remembers that now mm. or teaches it 
Yeah, I thought for that your your brief introduction was really helpful to uh, put it all together and summarize it in a quick uh, overview. So I really like that a lot. <laughs> I'm all about the quick and all about the um, clear. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably also why the stand-up comedy works so well. <laughs> Well, no, for that, I thank, you know, the man in the potato suit who comes to my door or the the crazy person who writes me a letter from Swindon in green ink. You know, then stand up is I mean, yes, I suppose there are performance skills, but you're nothing without your material. Right. <laughs> And that's provided by ordinary nutters. Oh, I think that is a very good closing sentence. The material is provided by the ordinary nutters. Fantastic. I'm afraid that is all we've got time for today. So it's wonderful to talk to you, Debbie. Thank you so much. Thank you.